All right. Welcome back to another episode of Bitfinex Talks. Uh, today we have a very special episode. We're here with Adam Back from Blockstream and Paolo Arduino, the CTO of Bitfinex. And I also have a co-host for this episode, Jesse Knutson, who was formerly with Blockstream and is also with Bitfinex. Um, how's everybody doing today? Pretty great, thank you. Good. I wanted to start this off with a question about side chains. I've seen a lot of discussion lately about uh, Paul Stork's drive chain. And since I'm here with Adam Back, who uh, is responsible for Liquid's Bitcoin side chain, I wanted to get his opinion on it. Uh, Paolo, feel free to chime in as well. Adam, what, what's your opinion on drive chain? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. And of course, people always prefer a more decentralized and more permissionless technology. So the current liquid sidechain is federated, which is a trade-off that can be implemented. And, you know, it's been in operation for some years now um, without requiring a soft fork, you know, to add some extra features to enable it. And the drive chain um, is, is a more sort of peer-to-peer -peer version. And, you know, there, there are a few variants of that. So Blockstream published the sidechain paper back in 2015 or so where we had one method to do this and a drive chain is a different variant of it. So I think in an ideal world, you know, eventually there would be enough kind of opcode flexibility that you could implement, you know, a few different variants of sidechains or something like that. Now, opcodes in Bitcoin are usually intentionally sort of generic, right? They could be used for this, but maybe somebody will find a use for it for some other layer two or some, you know, vault or some something, right? So it's it's a quite a complicated kind of language opcode design thing. So those kind of things take quite a long while. But Paul Stortz has been working on it for a while and he has a specific, you know, he has it he has it implemented, he has BIPs and it's a you know a source of um, Discussion and of course consensus starts from you know people discussing trade-offs and alternatives. So he's he's made that start. Yeah, it's, in my opinion, it's um, it's really a big uh, philosophical choice where you know there is the concept of uh, Bitcoin is almost perfect as it is, um, and there is always risk in uh, in changing it and adding you know new opcodes or features that could definitely, of course, expand um expand its uh, feature set and allow the drive chains and have, allow you know many other things possibly but uh, where we are going to draw the line and i'm not saying no personally to to drive chains of course uh, is it's just more like um a question that everyone should ask themselves because if we say yes to this change uh you know we we need there will be many more changes that could be cool to add but uh, you know how we can perfectly predict what impact would have would these changes have in long long run on on bitcoin so that's i think why there is a lot of um, you know anxiety and concern by by the community around uh, around the you know adding support for for these bits yeah i mean i think it's actually a very interesting topic for other extensions too, you see a similar thing. So there's been quite a bit of discussion about covenant opcodes in, in Bitcoin over the last couple of years. And Liquid has some covenant opcodes actually, so people can try you know, one variant 
in there. Actually, there's a, a second iteration. We've had it for so long that there is some developer experience, and then we added some more functionality. But you know, when it comes to Bitcoin, yeah, I think you know people are they want to know if it's safe, and they want to know, you know, understand high level things like does it adversely affect the incentives for for security and mining you know would if there was a lot of money a lot of assets shares cash or stable coins in a you know in a in a merge mind like a decentralized sidechain might it cause miners to try to undo something um right or or, or force them to receive a lot of bandwidth so there are all these questions and they're, they're quite uh open-ended um, Adam, I just wanted to ask quickly, uh, with Liquid's covenants, what uh, additional functionality does that enable? What what benefits would I as an end user have by using them? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, they're a kind of um, general programming tool, actually. So they end up being uh, quite powerful and really extending the scope of things you can implement using Bitcoin opcodes. Uh, I mean, Liquid has Bitcoin opcodes plus a few extras plus, you know, native asset support like stable coins as Tether and other stable coins. But it also has a few other opcodes like opcat, which Bitcoin lacks. It was disabled early on in Bitcoin. And uh, in the, the covenant mechanism we have, the original one is like check sig from stack. And so you can, basically there's not enough introspection in Bitcoin to quite assemble a covenant, a covenant being you know, a restriction on a transaction about what the transaction after it, the script of the transaction that follows. So you can have a sort of, you know, you can place a restriction after sale uh, of a, you know, after transfer. And that turns out to be a general programming technique. You can do all kinds of things with. So, I mean, we, we've used it, for example, to make a, a variant of that trustless trade I described. Well, so there, there's a there's possibility on Liquid to do trustless limit orders. And one, and, you know, Typically, that is, I mean, that's very easy to do because it's just, you know, the inputs or which are Bitcoins have to add up to the inputs, which the outputs which are Bitcoins and the inputs which are, let's say, Tether have to add up to the outputs which are Tether. So it's kind of extension to Bitcoin rules. But those are kind of, you've got to buy the whole coin. There's no change making or partial matches, right? And so with covenants, we, we have a scheme to actually implement an offline partial match, right? So I can nibble a bit off an order. And the covenant is basically saying, well, you can do that provided that the change goes to another limit order with the same terms. And so, you know, there's enough with the covenant and introspection codes, there's enough to verify and enforce that's the case. And so that means that anybody can take a partial order off it, provided that they put the change into an order which gives the same benefits per coin to the seller, right? So as an example, but you can do lots of things. You can make vaults. It's a general programming uh, construct. Adam, I just saw that you guys completed a $125 million raise to expand your mining facility. So I was kind of you know, wondering how you guys are going to look to execute that expansion in terms of product and, and maybe geography as well. Yeah, I mean, um, so I think one uh, thing that people are seeing in the market, uh, particularly last year, is that mining profitability dropped a bit as, as the Bitcoin price was down. And some of the prop miners, so people who are mining for themselves, um, took a lot of leverage against Bitcoin 
and and we all know that over leverage against Bitcoin it can creep up on you. And also they took leverage against ASICs, and it turns out that ASICs dropped much further percentage-wise than Bitcoin did. And there were people that used you know Bitcoin miners ASICs as collateral, and so that that created some problems. So there are some companies having troubles, but contrary to that situation, Blockstream is on the other side of the business. So we provide the hosting for miners, for companies that are doing mining. Um, so for example, Blockstream hosts uh, Fidelity, uh, digital assets, miners, and, and other funds in the space. Um, and so on that, that and we, we didn't have any, you know, Bitcoin debt or miner debt and so on, right? So, but what's happened in the last year is that last year there was, you know, the Bitcoin price was high and a lot of people made orders for miners and you have to prepay and pay long in advance. And so, you know, with the price correction, they're still receiving the miners and there's a shortage of power. So even though mining profitability is down, hosting demand is enormous and there's a big backlog and equipment depreciating in data centers. Sorry, just in storage facilities, basically new in pallet on pallet, as they say. And so, what what we have been doing for the last year is doing the you know the preparatory stages to expand to new uh, mining locations, so new new sites adjacent to or very close to a large low cost sources of power. So we have uh, about 500 megawatts across multiple sites. Uh, at a stage where we can, you know, put money on the ground and build out the infrastructure, and the infrastructure is containerized, and we have a kind of pipeline process to do that, and it has actually, a, you know, a quite good margin, but it's capital intensive, hence uh, raising money. So we have, you know, people queuing up to buy power, and that's across the industry, you know, to to send miners and power them up, but there's a shortage of it, so we're trying to. You know, get market share and satisfy that demand with our modular deployment strategy. Yeah, it's funny that there's a bottleneck around power because even within North America, there's still a lot of power, right? Like, Blockstream mining started in Quebec, where there's a lot of hard hydro, but it's difficult to access because of the politics. And we've seen, you know, different parts of North America start to, you know, take kind of a negative stance towards Bitcoin mining. You know, my home province of British Columbia recently had some news out. You know, New York had some negative news out recently. So do you guys, does Blockstream still want to focus on North America or do you look at maybe diversifying a little bit geographically? Yeah, I mean, we actually, our first mining farm many years ago now was was in Canada, uh, in, in the Quebec province. Um, and the early, and, and there was a time when we, st uh, you know, we started very early in the cycle, but there was a time where they were actively you know, soliciting for mining companies to come to the province and, you know, as a, as a business incentive, but because the power company is government owned and for the employment and construction jobs it would create. Um, and so, you know, that, that went on for a while, but then as you said, the political climate shifted and there was, you know, uh, sort of some confused data and it became political. So at that point, you know, going back quite a few years ago, we started diversifying into other geographies. So we have a couple of locations in the US and we're looking to expand more. And we're also, you know, have active conversations uh, more internationally for diversification purposes. Yeah, I mean, hash rate has really changed a lot, the composition, the geographic breakdown over the last couple of years, right? So even, you know, two years ago, maybe it was as much as 80% was China. And then we had the rise of North America, Kazakhstan, 
And Paulo, you you were in South America recently. Did you have a chance to interact with any any miners there? Do you think there's an opportunity for maybe South America to take a, a bigger chunk of the global hash rate pie? Well, first of all, it's I think is uh, long due that uh, we are actually seeing um, a, a walk towards an um, reduction of concentration of money in the U.S. So that's something that is a bit uh, ingenious here, right? No one was happy about uh, having so much uh, uh, hashing power coming from China, and we shouldn't be pleased uh, as well from you know, seeing that coming uh, from the U.S. So I think it's the more diverse geographically, the more resilient it is. It should be, right? So Bitcoin should be. So we have been um, visiting different countries from El Salvador, Uruguay, Paraguay, and definitely the beauty of it is that there is a ton of resources, natural resources, to do 100% uh, green uh, mining. Uh, Uruguay, for example, um, has uh, uh, the entire production of the country, or almost the entire production of the country, is, uh, is um, from um, uh, hydro and from um, solar and, uh, and uh, wind. And then also Paraguay has the biggest dam in the, in the world, that uh, produces up to 14 uh, giga, gigawatt, right? So it's uh, it. So there is so much potential, um, and also not non-optimized potential. I mean, uh, with producing 14 gigawatt means that uh, you are you are in a situation where for a good part of your time you are actually not reusing that energy properly. Uh, you are not. You are wasting a ton of energy because. You know, at night will not get used and so on. So, um, so I think is uh, um, I think we are um, we are going to see more and more uh, traction of uh, in South America about uh, on, on mining using renewable energies, and that uh, I think is uh, is the right way to go. So, with uh, you know, Tether is definitely looking to that with with Bitfinex, and uh, and uh, we are always working and discussing with Blockstream. As well about uh, you know mixed opportunities that we can have there. Why has South America been kind of late to the game? Because if they've got the the hydro facilities, is it is it the other infrastructure around that? Is it things like transformers and and internet connectivity? Is it that stuff that's kind of made them a little bit you know because miners went into Kazakhstan fairly early. They went into all different parts of the world, and South America seems to be one that you haven't heard that much about. That's a good question. I think that uh, uh, it's probably. Um, you had Texas that uh, were always offering already super cheap energy, and then they got uh, you know extremely um, you know they, they decided people saw that opportunity. Uh, Texas has good infrastructure, and uh, you know it was super easy. It was a super easy step. So I think you know that the reason is that sometimes South America is a little bit harder to um, to to understand and for. Uh, uh, for you know, investors to come in and understand where to start from. But uh, you know, going there and being there, I actually can testify that is not not really the case. Everyone is extremely welcoming, and everyone is super excited to do business, to to look to, towards shared opportunities. So I think is uh, it's a kind of unfortunately a misconception that uh, that many many entrepreneurs could have had in the past, but. Uh, um, uh, I think is going to change pretty soon. I should clarify that you know when I say there's a shortage of power for mining, it's a shortage of 
ready to use power. I the missing thing is the you know the racks and the transformers and the cooling and the switch gear, right? Because the there's lots of underused power, like you know, not not used to its full capacity because most um, capacity planning is based on the peak use, and so it typically goes under half used in most places, right? So there's typically an enormous amount of power that is not being used uh, continuously, and so yeah, I think the gap for a lot of places is that. I mean, the, the gap for currently is not, you know, there's plenty of power around and, and Bitcoin can mine anywhere. It's that it takes a lot of capital to build the infrastructure. So to buy the transformers, to do the electrical installations, the filtration, cooling, etc. And I think that the Bitcoin mining sector is undercapitalized. And, and the reason for that is, you know, if you look at any other industry like cars, computers, mobile phones, etc., there's a whole area of finance behind that, which yeah. is providing factoring or working capital loans to you know fund the the development. I mean, the the manufacturing to build inventory to sell, and that's the whole cycle there. And that cycle is largely missing in the Bitcoin sector because it's so new. And conventional finance historically has, you know, not understood the asset class or, or viewed it as high risk and so extremely high interest rates. And so you see that throughout the system, right? Both on the on a on the trading side, on the margin lending, there's a huge gap between you know Bitcoin related margin lending and stock and share margin lending on brokerages, right? The the, the interest rates are double digit versus single digit low, right? And yeah. uh it's it sort of pervades the other aspects. So apart from you know the mining infrastructure, also the manufacture of miners. You know, no miners are selling you miners from inventory in a normal market, and so they are asking the customer to make pre-orders and payments in stages because they're basically using customer uh, financing because they can't yeah. get you know factoring or uh, corporate debt or any of the usual kinds of financing, um, and. Also, the foundries, you know, the people they would buy, they would pay to make do mass production. The, the actual assembly companies are less likely to give credit, like manufacturer credit. And the yeah. foundries are less likely to give credit because they view it as a risk uh, sector and they don't understand it. So I think those things are gradually improving. Um, and some, some uh, sort of forward-thinking people from the conventional finance world are, you know, starting... I'd say I would say last year, and and it's improved from there to get more active in the space and understand and provide financing. So that might improve some of the liquidity problems, and I think that also underlies the, you know, the over leveraged nature. Like people needed to expand, and they needed the, the capital to do it, and so they took it from the only place they could, which was, you know, the Bitcoin and the miners, which was a high risk thing to do. Yeah. Now, normally, that in in any other sector. They would have, you know, used conventional corporate financing. So that's that's part of our structural, like I think, the Bitcoin sector's structural problem in the short term. I had a quick question: What impact does the climate in South America have on perhaps limiting uh, the mining industry? As I understand it, in El Salvador, they prefer like liquid cooled miners rather than air cooled miners, and the infrastructure is totally different for for both setups. Uh, do you think that's a limiting factor that there's not enough liquid uh, cooled miners being manufactured to meet the demand for for 
a South American mining industry? There are two uh, methods of liquid cooling. One is for the miner itself to have its own integrated liquid cooling block, kind of like overclocking kits for desktops kind of thing, right? You can get an overclock uh, cooling block for a CPU or a GPU that has integrated water cooling. Um, so there are a few, a few manufacturers doing that, but most of them are kind of aftermarket water cooling. So they'll, they'll basically make a tank and remove some parts from the miner and immerse it in the tank. And then they'll fill up a container or a warehouse with these tanks. And then they will have a sort of secondary heat pump that uh, extracts the heat from the cooling fluid and vents it uh, like that. So I think the challenge is really that it's, it's more expensive to do immersion in liquid cooling. Um, and it's relatively new. So it, you know there's less mature technology for doing it. Um, I mean, it is, it, is an, it is a technology used in other sectors, but for the Bitcoin sector, it's relatively new. And things in the Bitcoin sector tend to be a bit unique because of the power density. I think, you know, Bitcoin power density per square meter of data center space is quite a bit higher than AI workloads or conventional data center. So they tend to need uh, higher capacity heat extraction technology. So the big pinch point that we're back to is is funding again. I guess that's historically been the big problem for Bitcoin miners. I think that's actually the reason why China blew up so big in terms of hash rate is because they were had easier access to that first generation capital that could write a check faster than the more institutional money in the West. And I guess, you know, 2021, we saw a lot of those companies go to public markets and then raise money that way. And then the pinch point was the ASICs. Nobody could get allocation from TSMC or Samsung. Um, and and now it sounds like we're back to funding as a as a problem. So I wonder, like, what 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 were the lessons? If what are the lessons from twenty twenty one? If everybody got a little bit overextended, what do you think the lessons are for Bitcoin miners? Well, uh, I mean, I, th I think you know it was partly self inflicted in the sense that you know people can always choose how much to balance from, you know reinvestment to expand to capture market share which is risk on versus operate conservatively within it within the uh, working capital right and so i think you know too many people in in the prop mining part of the business were risk on capture market share and used a lot of leverage to do it so that that kind of eventually built up um and of course, you know, a, a, a mining investment is like time delayed. So they will, they will put capital to place pre-orders for miners. Normally they take about six months to get manufactured because of the foundry. The foundry process itself takes, you know, four or five of those months. So it's an unavoidable fact. But so they have to make a, a purchase decision, like the manufacturer hasn't got inventory. So you have to make a investment decision. You know, you're gonna spend $10,000 on this model of miner and normal market you get that in six months but because things got very hot last year earlier in the year yeah. um you know the pre-order went there was a shortage of miners and so the pre-order time period went up from like six months to nine months to 12 months and you know once it started that equipment is coming regardless right so now it's now i would say that probably the manufacturers have inventory some People who are prop mining have inventory because they were over optimistic about securing hosting to put their miners online. 
Um, so it, it will take a little while for that equipment to get online, and then we'll be back into you know. So, so I guess the I guess it sort of swings between. Ex, there's going to be an accessor of something or other, right? It's an imbalance. So currently, accessor miners. Eventually, we'll go you know uh, the other way where there's there's a shortage of miners. So I guess that's what's pushing hash rate higher at the moment, right? Like we've kind of had high highish hash rate despite weakish price. Is that that delay between um, you know people ordering the equipment and then it being delivered and then finding hosting to be able to deploy the equipment, right? So, so do you think the relationship, and then in, in then 2021, we had price go up and hash rates stay flat. So do you think the breakdown of the, the correlation between hash rate and the, you know, normally hash rate follows, sorry, normally hash rate follows price. So do you think that correlation has broken down a little bit over the last couple of years? Um, well, I mean, it, it is, it does follow, but the capacity to match the economics uh, lagged due to, yeah. You know, supply chain capacity, working capital, and you know the time delay uh, increasing. So, you know, of course, once people have bought the miner, they're in a sunk cost situation, where you know where they may not choose to buy a new miner, or not at that not the price they paid before. But given they've already paid for it, now they have an incentive to put it online. You know, as soon as they can. Yeah, because it will make, you know, it will make an incremental profit, and so that that lag and those machines coming online is why why the hash rate is continuing to grow at profitability levels where there wouldn't normally be a lot of fresh miner purchases happening if if miners were available in inventory, right, as a normal basis. So shifting gear slightly. So what are your thoughts on on ordinals? And and this kind of relates to Bitcoin mining as well. So ordinals is this project that's issuing NFTs directly onto the the Bitcoin blockchain. I think it's kind of interesting to me. This sounds a lot like Satoshi Dice from 2013-2014. So I was wondering Paulo and Adam like what 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 do you think of that and you know should I guess Bitcoin miners use transaction fees to filter, you know, spam. That's how you keep the spam out. Should they be doing additional filtering? on top of the transaction fees well that is uh well this is a uh, quite a hot topic uh lately yeah. <laughs> i know that uh, adam has uh, some uh, had some interesting opinions i lean it towards um what adam uh, suggested publicly in the sense that um it's not about suggesting to myers that they should go on go on, uh, on uh, full censorship so it's about freedom of miners right so some miners would feel that some transactions are just spamming and they could decide to not include them in the block others might be perfectly um uh, happy with uh, you know being paid higher fees to include you know some uh, hashes or or cut uh, jpegs in, in in the block space and then they would do it right so uh eventually is uh, is just a pure game theory and uh, is just a, a pure concept of uh, you know a pure philosophical concept. It's not just uh, is no one wants to suggest that uh, there should be a um, full on-chain censorship uh, layer. Um, but I think that if I was a miner, I mean, it's there are miners that eventually will be more and more kind of mercenary miners uh, driven by the you know pure economics part. And that's me perfectly fine. 
others might be you know still at least the og miners and uh, are more probably uh, interested in making sure that uh, um you know bitcoin will thrive and they are more like oriented to the uh, bitcoin ethos and uh, you know they care you know they might decide that some transactions uh you know are not worth storing and that's the beauty of it right that there is uh enormous freedom in um, among miners everyone can decide what to put in a, in a mining block and uh that's uh, that's how it should be uh that's also a feature right so there is no way to control and to tell and force miners what to do it's just about uh, communication and uh, and um, ideology how was how satoshi dice resolved i I don't remember how I don't I couldn't find an answer online of how that was resolved. It, it sounded like a very similar situation, right? Where uh, I think it was a, actually an Eric Voorhees company where they did online gaming and every roll of the dice was going right on chain and just basically jamming up the whole network. So how how did does do you know remember Adam how that was resolved? I mean, I heard about it in a controversy. I'm not actually sure what happened. I mean, maybe the fees, the Bitcoin price went up, and the minimum yeah. fees made it less fun. And it kind of handles itself naturally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually the whole situation is uh, kind of ironic for me because the the way that I arrived there, you know, uh, developing Hashcash a long time ago, right? In yes, yeah. 1997 was another distributed protocol, which was for anonymity in posting to Usenet discussion groups and for email, and you know, the the challenge with it. As, a, as an operator, like a volunteer operator of one of these anonymity providing nodes, was that people would spam through it, and so you know it wasn't it wasn't commercial spam like you know to uh, advertise something. It was just random numbers basically. And we, so we thought you know they're trying to create a blowback situation where system administrators of Usenet groups get annoyed about all this spam. And then try to block all the remailers or something. So that so we thought it was actually hostile to, you know, the utility function of the remailer, which is to provide anonymity. So the people who didn't like anonymity was spamming on it to discredit them, something like that. And so, you know, normally with anti-spam, it's based on like heuristics and blocking IP addresses and blocking sender emails. But you can't do that in, in an anonymous system because you don't know, right? And you know, maybe maybe. Philosophically, from my point of view, email should be anonymous anyway. Like attaching your identity to it should be a optional opt-in. So, in any case, it, it occurred to me that the fundamental problem was that email was effectively free, and so I designed this postage system to to add a cost as a kind of uh, a way to, you know, throttle it a bit. And um, so it's it's kind of full circle, right? So now people are. Yeah. Spamming Bitcoin, if, <laughs> to my point of view, right? Um, now, of course, as Paolo said, there is a philosophical discussion where some people will say, well, spam is a, you know, a human judgment and it's an economical system. So anybody who pays can do whatever they want with it, right? You know, if you, if you buy, you know, uh, a bottle of water or, you know, a big, a big jug of water, they're not going to judge what you use it for. Um, but if there's a country where there's a shortage of water and people are just pouring it on the ground because it's it's fun or something, it, it's uh, it still might annoy some people, right? So, so I think the other the other context is um, most internet protocols 
you know, Paolo and I have uh, distributed systems like computer science background, and most internet protocols are, um, you know, have to contend with denial of service. And so they have to do something, right? So, you know, apart from the resource limits that people know about in Bitcoin, of, uh, well, there's a block size and there's a dynamic fee, so if it gets very busy or over full, the fees go up. Um, there are other limits, right? So there are actually on a peer-to-peer -peer network, if the Bitcoin nodes are connecting to each other and exchanging transactions and blocks and things, and there's defenses in there, you know, so if you get too much data from one node, the software will automatically disconnect it. If it sends you too many invalid things, it will automatically disconnect it. If there are too many things coming from the same or like similar IP addresses, like in a bank, it'll get disconnected or downrated. And so there's a lot of things there which are, you know, if you wanted to be pedantic, you could say, oh, that's wrong. You censored this uh, node because it sent an invalid transaction. It's my right to connect to the internet and send whatever I want, right? But but the, the practical matter is that, you know, there's a contention of interest here and people are trying to make a pr pragmatic and useful thing work and be robust in an environment where you can't tell people what to do and you shouldn't want to tell people what to do, but they can, right? So people will do things because it's fun or to, you know, mess with you or you know, for aesthetic reasons, like uh, like the, the ordinals, uh, project guys are explicitly saying that, you know, because because one of the questions is, you know, if you want to do something, you want an effect, right? Which is you want to, you know, track the purchase of uh, some certificate relating to uh, digital art or something. And so, you know, you could say, okay, fine. Like if you were architecting that, how would you do it efficiently? So maybe you put, you know, a checksum in the chain and you transact that certificate. And there's a reference to, you know, the actual art in, a, in another distributed system like uh, IPFS, and and some of, there are systems that do that, right? But I think in this case they considered the consumption of Bitcoin space as part of the aesthetic appeal of of the art. So that's that's it's difficult to combat. So and I think another factor which is quite fascinating that's occurred many times in Bitcoin. There was a previous debate about op returns that, um, you know, there are different people who program focused on different areas. So there are people who, who program sort of networks and robust systems, and there are people who build applications on top of them. And so sometimes the application programmers are trying to build, you know, some kind of peer-to-peer -peer app, and they just want to like a bit of app data. And so they look around and like, well, how can I get this app data from like one user to another? Like, I know, I'll send it in the transaction, right? And so they're sort of using the the blockchain as a peer-to-peer -peer communication transport where really it should just literally use that. I mean, you know, topically like Keats uh, hypercore transport, right? So it's a general peer-to-peer -peer transport. And that would be the efficient thing to do because while you can, you know, use the Bitcoin as a kind of application-to-application -application transient messaging transport, it's not optimized for that. And so... You know, I think my conclusion on it is it, it would probably solve the problem if some people, you know, got some developers together with the right skill sets to make an opt-in blob transport uh, for Bitcoin, which is not part of the transaction history and not required to validate blocks, but it has references that you can place to transactions. 
and it's distributed. So basically, it's a kind of like custom blob transport opt-in profile, which some people can run and others not. And then, you know, it would enable people who who are app programmers to have an easy to use thing. Because I think the part of the problem is it's just opportunistic, right? I want to do something and it's hard work and it's a lot of development work to build a, network, a peer-to-peer network. And so they just look around and it's Bitcoin related. So they put it in the chain. And so I think- A lot of press as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part, I mean, you, you've got a, a for, for artwork, that's part of the appeal sometimes yeah. to try and drum up some interest. So maybe that's part of the formula as well. Uh, my question about ordinals uh, for both of you is how it impacts fungibility uh, by assigning a differentiator uh, to an individual Satoshi. Doesn't this have like a negative impact on Bitcoin's overall fungibility? Good question. Um, I mean, to me, you know, it's kind of a, to my understanding, is a layer on top of, uh, of uh, you know, they are creating the, these... Uh, Additional layer that is not necessarily or proper, you know, um, how is how I can define it? Proper carried over by by uh, the actual chain, or the there is no guarantee of of uh, this to be something that the blockchain will um, uh, will will maintain it, or will basically will have a meaning for it, right? So. Again, any information that you put or you, you store, it's it's how you interpret. So everything is subjective, right? So the the storage, the data is objective, but the everything else is subjective. And uh, you know, uh, counting the satoshis or, or doing all that. I mean, there is there is always a case to add anything to do something more and so on and so forth. But that, as Adam said, the, the people are getting used to find uh, shortcuts. To solve problems right because right now for example you would use a blockchain because it's a global shared state and you know you point you have a pointer to a specific information that you consider it immutable but is it you know is it the right way to do it probably not but the issue the reason why everyone is using blockchains to store data like uh, also doing dns's and doing all that is that in a way it's it's immutable and you are in leveraging on existing consensus but uh, the uh, designing something that uh, is not blockchain oriented is still distributed and it is kind of a difficult paradigm shift that not all all developers want to get into people like quick and dirty solutions rather than you know more complex and uh, you know visionary solutions so we see that all the time and you know uh, Ethereum is a tourist path. In BSV, I mean, I'm the guy that runs the nodes on uh, on, on in Bitfinex, and BSV node end up to be like nine terabytes now. And uh, you know the problem is that it's uh, of course nine terabytes are are cheap, but imagine indexing that stuff. Imagine the I/O that has to have and you know when you do an RPC, you know Bitcoin has all these RPC requests. And imagine like you, you, you call an RPC request on, on a block that has like, uh, uh, you know, one million transactions, like the, the node will take forever to respond because it has to read a ton of data and then, you know, co- mm, compile a huge JSON and send that JSON back to your, you know, R- RPC endpoint. So there are, I think that 
the effort that uh, that we should always keep in mind is to make sure that we can um, always keep lean uh, Bitcoin. Of course, again, you can put whatever you want, but uh, also Bitcoin is low, right? So why the hell you would put use Bitcoin for 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 things that are more consumer oriented, right? So it shouldn't be like that. Bitcoin should be like uh, the sacred uh, sacred uh, base layer for human wealth and freedom rather than being like um, a transport layer for for communicational data or, or subjective data that uh, you know would find a better uh, place somewhere else in 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 data structures that are fully peer-to-peer and proven and, and merkelized like uh, like the one that keith is using and the whole bunch are using i wonder also if there's just going to be this is going to be a, a mountain out of a molehill because you know, Rare Toshi, we had, um, you know, NFTs on Bitcoin via Liquid when the monkey JPEGs were trading for the price of a small condominium and the Rare Toshi prices were not in that realm. So I just wonder if the Bitcoin community, there's just no demand there for this kind of thing. And I think we're just getting worked up, worked up about something that's not really going to have any material impact on the on the network. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I think the these... Uh, images were done on a weekend it was like last weekend right and the fee rate was quite low like the the, the plus yeah. one full the fee rate was like one so like the minimum one satoshi per v byte and i was calculating uh, the images seem to be about 150 kilobytes so i was calculating there roughly like 20 dollar range transactions but you know in in a week you can get like uh 10 15 20 Sats per VBuy, and the market isn't very hot right now, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when things heat up in the trading market, um, typically what pushes the fees up, I think, is actually traders who they want to transact quickly because they've got to take the trade, right? And so they'll overpay, and then the fees will surge. So, you know, it may be that it, it will get priced out. I, th- I think that generally you want to have like, and, and this is also why Bitcoin has, you know, these different layer twos specialized for different things is you can preserve some of the sort of uh, trustless decentralized nature of Bitcoin in layer twos. You can preserve that, for example, in Lightning, right? Um, and so, you know, you, you could say, well, can't it all happen on chain? And of course, that's that's the, you know, the, the rationale for, uh bitcoin cash and bsv and all, all these kind of large chains right but in my view the sort of everybody wins if you use the optimal technology for the for the use case right and you see this in the internet protocols you know we don't like do voice over ip or video streaming over email because it's you know it would be horrible right it'd be slow it'd be expensive it'd be a waste of bandwidth it's just the wrong architecture and so i think over time we'll see you know, more, I mean, apart from Bitcoin, the world has now circled back to be much more interested in decentralized and peer-to-peer protocols like Keat. And there was a previous cycle of this, you know, with uh, file-sharing apps, but the large social media platforms kind of took over and the content producers became more friendly to, you know, relatively low-cost streaming and making it easier to selectively use things. So they kind of out, the central uh, systems outcompeted for users who didn't really care about decentralization, but that's come full circle with you know all the different media companies interposing 
kind of editorial control and even the political views of the management or the investors and things like that and uh, collaborating with you know even political parties and governments to influence try to influence opinion by you know filtering and changing posts and things is really quite ugly so I think that has now enough of that has become public knowledge that people are quite concerned about it and so there's a swing back towards decentralizing lots of applications and of course, that that requires you know clever and efficient protocols optimized for the job, which is which is what the hypercore transport under Keat is about. Right? I think you guys have been working on that, in fact, for many years, right? So it's really a mature piece of technology. So I think that that kind of thing is the future. So it's you know Bitcoin is the kind of micropayment and censorship resistant transactions and so on for the internet, but but we need protocols specialized to use cases. And so I think the, um, you know, posting uh, pictures into the blockchain is is kind of like the, the old thing people used to do, which is to chop ripped DVDs up into little teeny uh, hex chunks and post them on Usenet groups. And you'd have to like assemble hundreds of them into to, like recover this very compressed DVD. But now there are much better protocols for that. So I think that's the, the future. Speaking about decentralized uh, social media, we've seen a lot of excitement around Noster. Um, are either of you on Noster? Have, have you guys played around with it at all? Um, I've seen some of the clients have even added Lightning Network uh, micropayments to Noster. What's your opinions on Noster? Yeah, I like it. I've I signed up and like installed the client and you know asked a lot of questions about how it works architecturally. I'm still not 100%, but I, you know, got the gist of how it works architecturally, and I think that's quite interesting because it can sort of bypass the uh, filtering and risk of censorship of the uh, more centralized social media platforms. Yeah, I I like what the guys are doing. I think Jeff is uh, is um, is pushing a really good product there. Um, I have uh, you know from my you know, from my point of view, I would approach the um, a new uh, social network, uh, uh, decentralized social network, in a different way. I briefly discussed that um, over um, Twitter Spaces yesterday. Um, there is a, a fundamental difference between Keith and and uh, Noster, and uh, you know, although there are you know similar ethos, so I you know of course I'm applauding the the guys there. Is just uh, on from my point of view. Um, I when uh, a protocol is using relays by by default, and uh, you know it's uh, of course you know uh, it's just like a back of the envelope uh, calculation. But you could always imagine that if you have you know uh, x number of users, you would have a square root of the number uh, in terms of number of nodes um, and relays, right? So. <clears throat> And that's basically what what was what um, the predecessors of uh, BitTorrent were was were doing um, in a way like you had um, you know a donkey you had LimeWire they had all these peer-to-peer um, -peer techniques but in the end the indexes were all uh, centralized in in relays everyone could run their own relay could could run their own indexer right so to facilitate inter interchanges on inter exchanges uh, of information but then it became 
extremely, um, you know, sub, uh, subject to, um, you know, shutting down those those relays because they were kind of still single point of failures. Of course, they were much better than Napster that came like um, um, years before because Napster, Napster was one single point of failure that you know, took down everything. But so I think the technology is evolving to have, uh, you know, to make sure to have uh, every single node potentially being uh, a portion of the network. And that is the way that what made BitTorrent extremely resilient because using the DHT as a system to store and to allow people to pair, so to connect each other, is actually what, what, what made uh, BitTorrent different and what is making, in my opinion, Kit different. So you can, the assumption is that you need to be able to reach out to friends and family and uh, neighbors, whatever, without the need of any central server. Uh, then if you want, if you want to have your data more available, you could, in theory, use um, uh, relays. But in my opinion, relays should be your friends rather than have a fixed set of, uh, of, um, of, um, of nodes because that exposed um, you know, you to a potential or exposed the network to potential attack. Of course, you know, there will be always people willing to run nodes and to you know, take on the risk. But uh, you know, eventually, that might be getting harder and harder. So if instead everyone is, in fact, a node or can relay some someone else traffic, and I'm not talking to big quantities of traffic, right? So you could have like everyone is building his own social graph because you have all these connections, you have your contact list, you have friends, and so it means that you can have, like you have have 100 friends, you can have you know the 10 friends more active that they are more aligned can help you to store temporarily part of the messages that you you would like to deliver or are not fully delivered until you go offline, right? So there are some interesting techniques, but they are, you know, not not for sure not easy. And there are still we are still, you know, work working in progress on that side because it's like kind of a parting shift in the way you approach um, the web. It's more sub, more subjective web rather than to have like a single like uh, uh, or uh, a recognized set of sources of truths, you have subjective subjective sources of truths that are actually in the way in in a certain way a representation, in my opinion, of your of uh, of the human being or society. Where you know, for you, you rely on what you learn from or you your interactions with other people. And, uh, and and society is all about that. So we are trying to bring back societal um, behaviors in the peer-to-peer and uh, peer-to-peer networks. Maybe this is a good point to segue over to the Freedom Manifesto. So that was something that was you know published last year by by Bitfinex. Paula, can you run us through the main principles and the philosophy behind the Freedom Manifesto? Adam, in a way, is. Uh, is one of the persons that indirectly inspired the manifesto, right? So, in in you know, in my youth, uh, as a as a coder, I I always look well uh, at the you know uh, I I started coding uh, at early uh, ages, and uh, as soon as I the, the one of the first things I remember was the I'm I'm, I'm not sure if Adam if you remember that, but was the Frack magazine. Um, and then you had all the e-signs movement. Uh, I, I wrote for some Italian uh, e-signs talking about uh, 
RSA encryption, then the, you know how you could uh, you know uh, use it, how you can build in some small libraries that you can use in uh, in um, NRSA, and then I got hooked into uh, how you would uh, um, uh, fuck, um, uh, break potentially uh, a pub a private public key and showing all the implementing myself all the algorithms to do that and showing the different uh, you know um, uh, system that of course you know with pub, public and private key with like RSA are you know extremely difficult would take enormous amount of time but I wanted to show that through actual example through actual um, you know a math and uh, so you know I've always been excited about you know the all these um, publications and also you know the there was the hacker manifesto um, that uh, also was um, a big part of um, my life when I started you know shifting to uh, you know or learning how to break things and to build things like I always started from the concept that you have really uh, so and I usually, I usually use the term or the expression that uh, I like to design things that resist to the wrath of God because I spent my life and my early career in breaking things and trying to create you know and understand how it could you know get around things and uh, and and now, so everything that I design, I try to to think about okay, how someone else could try to break this, and uh, and uh, you know, so I how I can start preventing that, and uh, you know, having a manifesto that actually expresses, you know, your your emotions when your 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 feelings, your your uh, philosophy when you when on and ex- trying to con- in, in a simple way to express why you are doing all of this, right? So. Why we are in Bitcoin, why we are in uh, in why we are building Hole Punch, it's uh, is extremely important because it shouldn't be just about ourselves, right? So it's also be um, just be, it's also about uh, other people joining and understanding the movement and understanding how they can help. And um, so uh, when we decided to write our own manifesto, to me it was. Uh, um, super exciting because uh, it represents our commitment, a company commitment, but uh, hopefully a group, you know, will be expanded to multiple companies. Um, a commitment to freedom of uh, financial freedom and freedom of communications, uh, supporting technologies that require investment. Um, you know, uh, one of the uh, sad things about our uh, industry uh, at large is that uh, the there are not many companies that uh, provide capital back to bitcoin um and the bitcoin similar technologies and that is extremely saddening because you get all the there are some of our competitors are spending mil- hundreds of millions of dollars on nft platforms and i'm not judging nft as a technology per se but uh, uh the reason why that happens or basically all these web3 metaverse no one knows exactly where they want to go in with the metaverse and they the you know there there are so many definitions of metaverse and web3 and so on but there is so much capital flowing in because pcs are getting lured into you know believing any story and uh, not understanding technology actually just sidetracking the uh, the mo- the closest version of the of the metaverse is i think what whole punch could represent in the next like 10 years uh but aside that you know it's i believe that is important for company companies that were lucky enough to 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 do well in the bitcoin space to to 
to reinvest in Bitcoin because no one else would do it for us. No one else is, uh, is actually um, doing it because it's so easy to make money, uh, creating a new token, uh, creating, you know, uh, you know, selling anything that is, uh, that, is uh, that you could, uh, that an algorithm could build rather than with Bitcoin in order to get revenues or to increase the value you have to put a lot of work. It's not just proof of work because there is an algorithm. It's just proof of work because you have to sweat to create adoption in order to give more value to to the to the um, to to the Bitcoin uh, industry itself. So it's actually is a much bigger commitment that you would ever have uh, compared to what you have in in general in anything else related to crypto. So that's why we felt like we should put all this in writing in a simplified form, much. That is less of a round than what I just did. Yeah, I, th I think it's a really unique mission statement um, and probably has a lot of overlap, I think, with what Adam and, and Blockstream are doing as well in terms of, you know, technology that's supportive of freedom and privacy. Um, so I definitely see a lot of overlap there. What, what do you think of that, Adam? It's a very interesting time to be, you know, active in, in a technology space because of the Bitcoin phenomenon. And I think it's you know really inspirational and inspired a whole generation of people to to learn about you know cypherpunk ideas. There's been a lot more people sort of developing or attracted to that since the arrival of Bitcoin. And um, you know it's uh, there there are sort of maybe frivolous or speculative things happening on the sideline, but the actual you know, core technology and what it enables and decentralization as a technology phenomena is like super interesting in improving the, um, you know, sort of balance of power and, uh, you know, self-determination and, and self-sovereignty and self-reliance that becomes possible economically and, you know, so that, so that individuals can have more control of their life and environment. Because I think fundamentally any kind of hierarchical centralized or authority driven system is is inefficient you know it's sort of like the failure of central planning as compared to the free market the free market can uh, try many things and arrive at optimal solutions where central planners don't it's impossible for them to have enough information to satisfy you know the, the demands and preferences of all the different people in different locations with and different viewpoints so I think you see the same with um, sort of Bitcoin as a monetary basis for a ground up uh, sort of financial and economic revolution in a way, right? It's a way to opt out of the system, become more self-reliant technologically and, you know, financially and in your personal affairs. So I think it really is quite interesting. And, and you know, the phenomena of the uh, the manifesto approach is is like a kind of call to arms or something right to say look this is this is what we believe in and this is what we're doing and it, it causes people to you know take it seriously and read it and be inspired by it and join into to a movement that is ultimately you know groundbreaking and for the betterment of humanity i mean technology waves sometimes are thousands of years apart and it, and i think it's you know, maybe sounds grandiose, but I think Bitcoin is genuinely, you know, a, a multi once in many thousand years uh, technology evolution. If you think about how long gold has been available 
as a kind of store of value, even to this day held by governments and individuals and valued. The Bitcoin is is a you know technological evolution that finally improved the uh, you know is is a better gold like a digital gold. That, so I think that is really a transformative and fundamental thing. So to me, it's much more you know uh, motivating and sort of driving mission to to focus on to you know help make that transition and and make the technology scale and provide the security and safety from like data loss and uh, sort of recovery and security balance um, to enable as many people as possible to to benefit from that. And I think it also, you know, in the earlier stages of electronic cash, there were some centralized systems that people were excited about, but, you know, they weren't robust because they were centralized and they relied on central parties. But um, one of the challenges with anonymity networks was that there was no way to sort of have a micropayment system within them because there was no electronic cash, right? So, you know, the uh, privacy networks like Tor and the Remilla network were pretty much operated by volunteers, you know, paying for, paying for the bandwidth costs. And it's not very scalable and it's hard to have quality of service and that kind of thing, right? So, you know, with, with Bitcoin and Lightning and peer-to-peer transports like Hypercore, which, uh, integrates you know basically lightning micropayments so that you can do you know quality of service and metering and even provide a business model to content production i think that's uh, a much more a much stronger kind of technical technological architecture for the future so adam 2021 blockstream launched the blockstream mining note which is essentially you know essentially gave investors access to tokenized hash rate that redeems into bitcoin on on maturation so we've just kind of passed the halfway point on that. I was wondering, what, what do you think about the the, the performance of the of the blockstream mining note in terms of how much Bitcoin it's accrued, and you know, what do you think of the performance of the blockstream mining notes mine and hold strategy so far? Yeah, I mean, I think it gave uh, some quite interesting. I mean, it it the timing of it was quite interesting. So <laughs> yeah. it picked up some advantage actually from the exodus of mining hardware from China because that caused a, a big dip in the hash rate. And so the people that remained online got an artificial boost in profitability for quite a few months there while that while that equipment found new homes and power, you know, the hosting infrastructure was assembled in different countries. That big plunge um, in the hash rate. Yeah. So I think that that kind of accelerated the BMN return profile by two or three months or something like that. So it's definitely ahead of schedule in terms of you know, what loosely people thought it might have mined based on, you know, the difficulty curve that was happening before that. And of course, it, you know, it, it took a while, but it came back like about maybe about six months or something, the hash rate had recovered. Um, but that was definitely a boost for, for holders. And then, you know, the other phenomena is, um, I think, as, as the Bitcoin price fell back, it, it reduced new investment in hash rate. And then, of course, the relative shortage we were discussing earlier of uh, hosting you know hosting ready to power up miners has also delayed the hash rate growth um so both you know all of those factors have actually helped uh you know people who were online and mining uh, so you know it, it mined it's currently mined about 5.8 bitcoin um in the first 19 months something like that um and 
So that's actually a bit ahead. And, you know, the hash rate has is, is probably still behind the curve. Um, but, you know, it, it's a it's a dynamic system. So, so I mean, the, the back testing that we did was that, you know, mining provides some upside participation, but also some downside protection. And, you know, we, we understand, you know, everybody understands loosely where that protection comes from. So basically, if things are unprofitable, like if price falls of Bitcoin and the mining profitability is squeezed, or, you know, you end up mining more Bitcoin, or if some hash rate goes on offline due to a political event, and you're still mining, you get a temporary uh, bonus. So, so we got to experience both of those things in the first half, which is kind of uh, interesting. So where, where do we go from here? Do you have any other STO type projects in the pipeline or tweaks to the BMN that you're considering? Yeah, I mean, so we were always interested to make a series of BMMs. So, you know, to make another one. Um, so for, because it's a term instrument that lasts for three years. So we're interested to have like multiple overlapping there's a kind of ongoing series of them. So the, the initial one was series one. So we're certainly interested in a series two. It's a little um, dependent on the market and the pricing because yeah. currently it seems that uh, people who are hosting miners are paying a premium compared to the BMN price. <laughs> so it's actually, you know, a, an interesting strategy to sort of arbitrage BMN against hosting. It's going to complicate arbitrage, but there is some significant spread in there, I think. Um, but, you know, so basically demand for the BMN profile tends to be high when Bitcoin mining profitability is surging. And, and that's basically when it looks cheap in Bitcoin, right? So historically, people bought the BMN at different prices because there were eight tranches. The tranche eight was on the Bitfinex securities market. And the other seven tranches were via Stocker uh, placement. And then, of course, people trading secondarily. Um, as the, the price ranges they paid in Bitcoin varied between like four and a half Bitcoin and I think eight Bitcoin. And so I think like three or, three or four of the eight tranches are in profit in Bitcoin terms already at the halfway mark. So you can see that the BMN becomes cheap in Bitcoin terms, when the Bitcoin price is high, and so then people will buy, will use Bitcoin to buy the BMN, in anticipation of at, at maturity getting back more Bitcoin than they put in, and that's already worked out. You know, for some people who at, at five point eight yeah. Bitcoin mined, but who bought it for four and a half, and there's like two or three chances tranches that are in that scenario. So that's quite interesting to see. Um, so yeah, more more tranches to follow as the market. Is in that's, the right balance. That's not what we anticipated originally, too. We didn't expect people to invest in Bitcoin and then make more Bitcoin. That wasn't the idea. The idea was to invest yeah. with dollars and then to make more, more dollars. Yeah, right? I mean that's that was an interesting observation because you know we could see what what people were buying with, and of course the discussion. There's a quite lively uh, Blockstream Finance Telegram channel where where holders of of BMN and other people interested in you know, the SDA marketplaces. And are mining, modeling and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they, they have developed their own theses for, you know, predictions and things like that. And, but the interesting thing that transpired that was, you know, not predicted is that most of them bought with Bitcoin with the hope of getting back more Bitcoin than they paid. Um, whereas really, you know, 
we had originally done the back testing with the mindset that, well, if somebody is unsure about, it doesn't really have a view on, on where the Bitcoin price is, will it go up or down? You know, where is the the sort of market feeling that they could do some mining because it has downside protection and you're less it's less sensitive to when you start. But actually the investors were primarily existing Bitcoin holders. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, and I think on the, on the STO front, we have a couple of other products in, devel in de development, uh, some, some for fairly imminent, you know, try to try to get to market quite quickly. Uh, one is a uh, Bitcoin mining opportunity strategy, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the details of it. But, you know, the idea is that there are some opportunities in, in, in a situation with some distress. So every distress is an, also an opportunity. So we're, we're assembling a, uh, discretionary Bitcoin opportunities fund, which we'll talk about more publicly shortly. Um, and then we also have a couple of uh, yield um, products, one a US dollar yield in, a, in an STO format, and the other one a Bitcoin yield in a US dollar, in an in STO format, uh, with, with a bias towards low risk, actually. I have to ask, and where does the yield come from? Yeah, that's that's a critical question to ask because last year has shown. I don't want to be that, the yield. Yeah. Yes. The, <laughs> See what happens in that situation. If, if you don't know what what where the yield is coming from, Sorry. and it's often very confusing in uh, in some of the so-called DeFi projects that in fact you are the yield. Yes. Uh, no. So so we do you know various low risk strategies based on uh, diversification, margin lending. Um, and certainly no, because I mean, some of the DeFi, no, no kind of high risk DeFi stuff, uh, secured lending is, an, is another approach. Um, and there's a kind of, there are different arbitrages you can do, um, but certainly we avoid, you know, concentration of risk on platforms, relying on platforms that are, you know, unknown entrants reputationally in a field and uh, certainly no DeFi. I believe that a lot of DeFi yield is not really yield in the sense that there's no borrower. It's really uh, actually an airdrop. You know, so Luna was that phenomena. You know, the defenders of it had a lot of pre-mined Luna tokens, as and they paid a 20% interest rate to entice people to put put more money in. And as that pushed the price up, they were on the back end selling Luna tokens to pay people an artificial interest rate to incentivize more. So I guess in hindsight, that became obvious to people that that was actually a kind of Ponzi or something, right, fundamentally. So there's a lot of that stuff going around and we've been... So anyway, I mean, the part of the, the uh, DeFi and sort of uh, lending uh, problems of last year and involving a number of industry players in that market that have suffered problems, um, I think is ultimately down to sort of a race to the bottom, you know, so they're always trying to one up each other, like they'll offer 8%, the next guy will offer 9%, the next guy will offer 10%. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people running the businesses are not exposed to that risk. And so they have the temptation to sort of gamble with other people's money. Um, and the users aren't sticky either, they'll chase the yield. So you kind of have yep. to do that. Right, and so our differentiator, and we we have you know, uh, you know, worked on modeling this strategy 
from before the DeFi failures, actually. And our, our sort of differentiated strategy was to think that actually there is a, a group of people on the sidelines who are looking at this and thinking that these yields, you know, are nowhere near the risk-free rate. I, they must have enormous uh, un, un, misunderstood risk. And, you know, that turns out they're right. And so our thinking was to, you know, provide the medium yield, low risk strategy on a win-win formula, i.e. on a hedge fund carry formula, so that it's transparent what the upside is, you know, because, because not only do, they do some of these platforms expose the customers to risk, but they don't disclose how much, how much of the upside they're taking, right? Um, yeah. So the hedge fund carry formula is kind of win-win formula, which is well established as a kind of a way to align interests and uh, foc focused on a low risk profile, basically. I also wonder if some of those arbitrage strategies, if they're more profitable now, because so many of those prop trading firms kind of blew themselves up. So the spreads are probably getting wider in some of those things again. Uh, yeah, actually, it's um, coincidentally, you know, the divergence between conventional finance uh, portfolio margin rates versus crypto rates has grown uh, basically because um, people got spooked by FTX and took, you know, yeah. Bitcoins and dollars and stablecoins off of uh, platforms. I wanted to take it back to financial freedom for my last question. Um, are you both aware of what's going on in Nigeria and the premium that people are paying for Bitcoin uh, due to the CBDC rollout of the eNaira and the capital controls that the Nigerian government has implemented? Uh, people are paying like, 40% more for Bitcoin than they are everywhere else. Uh, do you expect this trend to continue? Uh, seeing that 80% of countries are about to roll out CBDCs and uh, Paolo specifically, have you seen increased demand for Tether from Nigerians? In a way, I think that with modern technology, uh, capital controls are going to be more and more a desperate attempt that will in long term will fail. Uh, people are going to find always ways to protect their wealth. It's not about speculating here, right? So it's not like people want to speculate on Bitcoin. They want to speculate on on, uh, on, uh, on stable coins. There is nothing to speculate on stable coins also. But it's a way to protect themselves, their families, um, having a lifeline for, for saving uh, money. And that's what I think uh, these uh, these guys are are trying to do. That's why the premium went uh, that up, right? So, and uh, but I think that of course uh, initially the capital controls will will create panic, but eventually, as we are seeing in Argentina and other places that uh, have a ton of uh, and huge capital controls, eventually people will get. Um, smarter will 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 understand uh, that there are technologies that will give them more freedom and they will start using these technologies and these solutions so i think is uh is like a last desperate attempt from from uh, from governments governments should actually instead focus on trying to understand the technology trying to uh, understand how to properly use or uh, add options uh, as as bitcoin payments officially recognized if they want to do the good of their own countries. On Liquid, I don't think that the market really appreciates how cheap and how fast USDT is on Liquid. I did some transaction last weekend sending um, Liquid USDT from my green wallet to Bitfinex. I think it confirms in like a minute. 
And I think it costs like seven cents. So it's ridiculously fast and ridiculously cheap. And when I was doing that, I was wondering if, you know, maybe all the chaos in the markets over the last six months kind of brings the original liquid use case back into focus of, you know, supporting faster, cheaper, more confidential Bitcoin and, and USDD transactions, giving, given all the chaos that we've seen in the last um, six months. If we'll see a circle back on that and people focus more on that, on that kind of um, de-risking and, and, and using liquid for that use case. It's fast because of the block time and because on a liquid network, <laughs> two blocks is is final in the consensus algorithm where uh, exchanges will use a different number of block confirmations with Bitcoin depending on the maybe the client risk or their own risk preferences. So maybe three confirmations or six or what have you. And of course the block intervals can be a bit random. So a main chain transaction could be a bit slower. Um, and I think, you know, Bitfinex is a platform that focuses on sort of power users, you know, bigger traders, funds, and things like that. And so they will often be doing sophisticated trading strategies involving multiple platforms, and they'll need to move liquidity between the platforms quickly or to add more liquidity quickly. So I think Liquid is quite good for that because, you know, the the platform-to-platform -platform transfer, like, you know, in a minute or two is pretty good. So it's like human time for trading. Um, and <clears throat> I think the other thing that has been, uh, you know, evolving and been in market for a little bit now on Liquid is the trustless trade technology. So with Liquid, there's a very straightforward way to make an atomic trade. Um, so in Bitcoin, you just, you know, there are there are coins that go in, the input transactions, and there are coins that go out, and the rule is that the inputs have to add up to the outputs. Now, in Liquid, there is uh, different types of coins, you know, stable coins and Bitcoin and other assets. And so there's a sort of extension to that rule, which is, the number of Bitcoin inputs have to add up to the value of the uh, Bitcoin outputs, and the number of, let's say, Tether inputs have to add up to the Tether outputs. But they can be provided by different people and constitute a trade. So I can put in, let's say, 22,000 Tether into a transaction and leave it open to somebody else to put the Bitcoin in and say, well, anybody can take this uh, Tether if you're willing to give me a Bitcoin for that, for that price. And so I can actually you know, sign that limit order from a hardware wallet and upload it to, you know, um, a central order book platform, like a Bitfinex platform, and then walk away. Let's leave the limit order there, you know, ho hoping to pick up a, a short dip in the price. And if it happens, effectively what, ha what will get, what will happen is the, you know, the buyer will put the Bitcoins in and put, uh, put in their address where they want to receive the tether and the transaction gets sent to the chain and cleared. And so it's possible to, you know, have the convenience and, and, and user experience of a, you know, professional trading platform like Bifinex, but with this technology integration to have a trustless trade where the assets actually remain in the traders' cold wallets, you know, right, right on a hardware wallet. So, you know, we're interested to see you know, the uplift in and demand for that kind of thing since the FTX scare. So I think people have become a lot more conscious about platform risk. And you know, Bit Bitfinex is a company that uh, reinvests in technology. You know, one of the first companies to you know, integrate Liquid, to integrate Lightning, and you know, sort of innovative layer two things. And so you know, as 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 Bitfinex comes to integrate this type of technology, I think it's a differentiator that 
you know, says, look, you can you can trade on a platform with less trust required, and it you know it c- it could be interoperable between orders on the book that are from you know traders who have cut, cut funds on the on the exchange, and people with their own custody, because all that happens is, you know, the Bitfinex trading platform basically acts as a trustless trader matching, you know, the hot wallet with the non-custodial limit orders. And so the, the two markets are, you know, could be integrated directly. I can say that on the, on the Bitfinex side, although, you know, we are running an exchange, we always push our users to understand the importance of, uh, you know, keeping their Bitcoins um, in their cold wallets. And so having a way to trustlessly um, uh, trade is something that we definitely need to explore. We explored it in the past and we is always in, on our radar because in case the part that we discussed before about our readers, we, we really need to have people understanding how this technology works and exchanges shouldn't be bank, shouldn't be banks, right? So exchanges should be exchanges and people should be able to understand and, and educate themselves on how to keep their Bitcoins secure in their cold storage. That's great. Guys, um, I really have to. Yeah, we're involved. way over time. <laughs> You're, All right. You want to wrap it up? All right. Well, thank you both for uh, accepting the interview and coming on the show. It was great uh, asking you a bunch of questions. Absolutely. Thank you very much, thank guys. You. Thanks. Thanks Take care. Indeed. Thanks.